Well, good to see everybody here today at Berean Bible Fellowship. May the Lord bless you. Nice to see some beautiful sunshine outside, right? Still some crisp mornings and even some cool evenings, but spring is uh, moving along. We're glad you're here. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew once again, chapter 18, where we read from a while ago. And I want to just single out the verse that'll be the one we kind of key off of this morning and Then we'll have a word of prayer and look into God's word together. So look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. There we'll find a question. This one asked by Peter. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Quite an interesting question. We're going to ponder that a little bit here in the message this morning. So let's look to the Lord. We'll have a word of prayer and see what God has for us today. O gracious Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and we are thankful for the cross that we've just sung about. We're thankful, Father, that we can glory in the cross. We know, Father, that is truly something that we can boast in, knowing that it represents your great love and great grace that was manifested towards us when we were nothing but undeserving and hell-bent sinners. Thank you that you love us that much and thank you that we can treasure the cross, the the efficacious and soul-saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, how grateful we are that we can proclaim that message. I do pray, Father, that if anybody's here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as personal Savior, may they understand how important forgiveness is, how important it is to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with you that we know is only possible through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And so that's a prayer that we have. And then, Father, we do want to pray for each of us as God's children who is here this morning, everyone who knows Christ as Savior. Lord, we, we always come here with all kinds of needs, and some are known and some are not known, and we just want to open our hearts to you now. I, I pray, Lord, on behalf of each of us that you will just give us the ability now to uh, put away from us those cares and concerns that may be a part of later today and give you the opportunity to minister to us by your Holy Spirit today. That's truly what we've come here for is to sense your presence and to know that you're moving in our midst and to know uh, how you would have us to be equipped for this new week and to be better Christians and to be more like Jesus. And to that end, Lord, I pray that you will give me a liberty and freedom and an insight, a warmth, a practicality in proclaiming your word today so that uh, being led of the Holy Spirit, I will say those things that will honor you and be helpful to the folks that are gathered here today. So please guide and direct and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer, For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, do remember our Sunday morning series that we've been working on. They asked him this. So sort of the counterpart to those questions that Jesus asked, those those penetrating questions of Jesus are some pretty good questions that people ask Jesus. And so as you go through the, the, the Gospels, you will certainly encounter those. Many of them were asked by common, ordinary people, just like you and me. Others were asked by Jesus' adversaries. We haven't so much looked at one like that yet, but we'll get to that kind of thing in due course. But most of them were asked by the disciples. And I've said to you before, I just want to remind you, I find such encouragement in that because, and I think you are going to see it once again today, how much like us they were or how much like them we are. And we can identify with that, can't we? I mean, uh, so often they ask Jesus these questions and I think it's generally speaking the wrong attitude to 
read those stories in the Gospels and to look at a question and think, oh, that was dumb. They should have known that. Well, just always remember when you have one finger pointed like that at them, you probably have three coming back to yourselves. They're just like us. It's just like looking in the mirror. And uh, that's why this can be so practical and helpful for us today. Last time we had, uh, had a question also in Matthew chapter 18. Look back at verse number one where it says, at the same time the disciples came unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I, I sort of made the remark last Sunday morning that that may be one of the most revealing questions they ever asked. Because even though we don't like to talk about it, I think all of us know that we struggle sometimes with pride. We know that humility does not come naturally to us. In fact, humility is the exact opposite of what fallen human nature is like. So that may be one of the most revealing questions they ever asked. It was certainly an honest one, and I think they maybe got a little more into it than what they, it was maybe more revealing than that they wanted, uh, but they asked that question. If we look at the one that we have this morning, then um, verse number 21 came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall I sin against my, my brother, sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? And I think this may be, if we were to say the one last week was one of the most revealing, I, I sort of think this may be one of the most difficult. We come to a subject this morning, forgiveness. We don't always find that easy, do we? And maybe you sit here this morning and the worst that's ever happened to you, although I doubt it, <laughs> is someone's looked at you wrong. Someone saw you and said, oh, that's a dumb looking tie. And that sort of didn't set well with you or who cut your hair or something like that. And you kind of think, ah, you know, <laughs> kind of have some thoughts like that. But I'll guarantee you, um, those are some really pretty small things, although some of us are sometimes pretty small people, and we hold those things against people. Just wait until the right buttons are pushed. If you haven't experienced how difficult sometimes forgiveness can be sometimes, I guarantee you that forgiveness can be one of the most difficult things that we have to grapple with. A little general background, um, thinking about the gospel stories and knowing sometimes we have different accounts, let me say about this one that Matthew is the one who has the most in-depth account of this. In fact, this is probably singular in a lot of ways to Matthew. He's the only one who has the parable that we're going to look at that Jesus uses to unfold his answer. He's the only one who has the question. We are going to refer a couple times in the message to the fact that Luke has some parallel teaching, probably given on different occasions. But Jesus, on different occasions and with different groups, often repeated things that he taught other times. And so that shouldn't surprise us at all. So Matthew is kind of the main place that we want to look for that one, and that's exactly what we're doing this morning. I say to you again, the subject is clearly forgiveness, and what I want to do is note three thoughts. First of all, I want to start talking by a little bit more, elaborating just a little bit more about the difficulty that's involved in forgiveness, because I think that's really part of the question. It's why Peter asked. We'll look at that in just a few moments. And then we're going to talk, the, really the centerpiece of this is to talk about the duty of forgiveness. And finally, at the end, I want to bring to you just a couple of thoughts about the dilemma that we face sometimes in this arena of forgiveness. Now, by the way, we'll paraphrase this question a little bit because what I want to try to do is get right to the heart of it. If we look at verse 21, and we've got kind of a long question where Peter says, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? A little bit too long for a sermon title. So we'll condense that this morning to, is seven times enough? 
What do you think about that? Is seven times enough? Well, we're going to look at that, first of all, by thinking a little bit about the difficulty of forgiveness. I want to elaborate on that just a bit more. What's going on in the context? Well, if we back up in the context a little bit and see what the Lord's been talking about, because the disciples were hearing all of this, and as they hear, they think of different things. And as they think of different things, then certain questions arise in their hearts. That's how we are sometimes, right? We, we listen to a sermon or we listen to a Sunday school lesson, and it might be even a little bit off the topic, but we're reminded of a question that we have. But in this particular case, if you go back to verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, you would find the word offenses or some form of that mentioned in each of those verses. I'm going to read verse 6 and verse 7. He says here, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? So what do you do when someone offends you? This is kind of the topic that's coming up. Verse number 7, it says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. Now, when you look down at that in verse number 7, I want you to especially try to remember the word world. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. That's in contrast, and I think there's a real point here to be made. That's in contrast contrast to the later teaching that Jesus gets into down towards the end as he continues to develop this subject of offenses, he gets into a new subject. Not offenses that come from the world, but what about offenses that come from brethren? Look at verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee. Well, do you see a contrast here right away, and do you see something that would point towards the difficulty of forgiveness? Here's my point. My point is is that we're sort of conditioned, and rightly so. I mean, the Bible talks about this. The fact that people aren't going to always like our Christianity. And all you have to do is read the news every day to see how many people in America don't like Christianity. And uh, so when we have encountered this kind of thing out there in the world, we may not like it. It may hurt our feelings. Um, I've certainly encountered this. I'm sure that you've encountered this before. there, There are people who just... Uh, maybe have a little built-in antagonism, especially if you're a preacher. It's kind of like you know, they hold you out here. They, they really don't want anything to do with you. Um, and, and all of that kind of goes along with the territory. But when we think soberly and we think about what the Bible has to say about that, we say to ourselves, well, okay, I, I, I'm not really shocked by that as much as sometimes maybe it hurts because I think most of us like to be liked. So as much as sometimes it may hurt a little bit, we're not shocked by that. What I think does kind of shock us sometimes is sometimes when it comes from a different source a little closer to home. When sometimes it's a Christian brother or sister that creates the offense or that sins against us, that has a way of sort of getting inside your defenses a little easier, doesn't it? Because you're expecting a different standard. You're expecting a different level of conduct. You're expecting it to be, as the Bible presents it, that... uh, we're all one body, brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and you just, oh, yes, we know at home sometimes as we grew up, we had brothers, we had sisters, sometimes we had our little spats. But we were all family, and eventually, in most cases, things uh, got sorted out. No particular problem there that was a long and enduring one. But boy, the brother, and that's another subject sometimes, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? You don't have to admit it. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's okay. 
Now, I think Peter is thinking about these things. And I think that as Peter listens to what Jesus has to say, easy enough to listen to Jesus talk about offenses coming from the world. But when he starts getting into this subject of offenses coming from brethren, and implicit at the very heart of that is the idea of forgiveness. And I think that really, in a lot of ways, I think Peter was trying to be preemptive with this question. Peter knows that this is out there. Who knows what the Lord may say next? And so Peter just decides to ask a question, which is kind of what he's thinking at this point. But it's kind of interesting how he phrases the question. Look at that verse 21 again, because he uses a number, and that's why I say if we condense this down, we say, is seven times enough? Peter says, how oft, how often do I have to do this? All right, you're, you're talking about if your brother sins against you. Okay, so I see right away where this is headed because if you read more of the verses, he's talking about a procedure to get those things resolved, and you don't get those things resolved unless you're willing to forgive, right? I mean, on the one hand, you've got somebody who does something wrong. If they're convicted of that, they need to ask you for forgiveness. But on the other hand, you need to be willing to give them forgiveness, and you need to really be able to forgive them whether they ask for it or not. That's hard. And Peter senses that this is coming, so I think the question's maybe just a little preemptive. And he asked Jesus, where did he get the number seven from, do you think? Well, Believe me, you can get whacked out on this, but there is something to the study of what is known as, as Bible numerology. There are certain numbers in the Bible that have a significance that's attached to them. As I say, you can get really carried away with this and, and just, you know, see a significance behind every bush when one may not be intended to be there. But sometimes numbers in the Bible do have a significance to them. And seven tends to be the number of completion, seven days in the week, right? And we could do more with this. But So I think Peter is also comparing this to a well-known teaching, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't, but the rabbis generally thought and taught that you, you, would, be, you would be obligated to forgive someone as many as three times. Well, now, put all of that that you've just heard back into Peter's question. He's wanting to be preemptive, but I think he's also, and isn't this so like us, He's also sort of wanting to present his own question in the best possible light. There's no sense in admitting more than you have to, right? Are you smiling now? You get what I'm kind of trying to say here? There's no sense in telling more on yourself than you have to tell. You know, that this is kind of a struggle. I know this is a struggle. So the rabbis say three times, I, I, this question bothers me. I think the Lord's going to be talking about forgiveness here. So I'll just ask the question in a way that sounds like I'm a generous person. How often do I have to do this? Is seven times enough? And, and what does all this really just betray? It betrays exactly the practical issue that we're dealing with this morning that Jesus seems to have the disciples a little bit worried. By the way, keep your fingers here and turn to Luke chapter 17 because this is where you find this parallel teaching in uh, Luke. And I want to show you something here which I think confirms that this whole train of, of conversation that Jesus is having with them and they're picking up on this idea of forgiveness, it's got them just a little nervous. So in verses 3 and 4, look here in Luke 17, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Same subject. He's talking about the same kind of a thing. If he trespasses against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. 
And look at what it says next. Now, I, you know, this is one of those times where I feel sorry for people who don't find humor in the Bible. This, this makes me laugh. It really does. Every time I read this, I think to myself, <laughs> I just, and the, the, the disciples are listening to this thing about, I have to forgive him if he repents. And they, what do they say? Increase our faith. Oh, wow. This is going to really take a lot of faith. Increase our faith. It's just kind of revealing, isn't it, of, of the struggle that they had. The Lord's got them nervous talking about this subject of forgiveness because this is, again, the truth of the matter. We're like them. Offenses can run deep, and we do not find, often find, forgiveness easy. Why? Well, we'd be the whole rest of the sermon. I wouldn't get anything else done if I tried to spend all the time on this. But I do want to share a couple quick thoughts with you. This week when I was doing some further research on this, I encountered a devotional that someone had written that I thought really had some good thoughts in it that sort of speak to why forgiveness can sometimes be such a challenge and be so difficult for us. And a lot of it has to do with misconceptions. So what are some of the misconceptions or what are some of the things that we don't quite key in on accurately when this subject comes up? The first of them is that forgiveness doesn't justify the other person. It frees you. The other person may be wrong. And I think sometimes what happens is we think, well, I can't forgive that person because they'll think that they were right, which is not really the issue. That's God's matter to settle and we have to remember, forgiveness, forgiveness is not about justifying the other person if they've done something to you that's wrong, especially if they haven't confessed that or made that right. It's about freeing you. Freeing you how? Freeing you to show the mercy and grace in victory over resentment and bitterness that is the way God is characterized because, after all, in one of the Beatitudes, as we have it accounted for in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says this, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Well, it gives us the opportunity to act exactly like God acts, to be his children. Secondly, sometimes we see this person as the enemy because what they've done to us and how much it hurts. It's very easy to fall into that way of thinking. This person ruined my life. This person ruined my job. This person did this. And we take that very, very personally. But, you know, folks, in reality, there's no person who's so much our enemy. There's a spiritual entity who is our enemy and who often uses those types of things to bring about our spiritual downfall, and that's the evil one. So often we feel like your struggle, our struggle is with the person. So often we feel that we're deeply hurt by the struggle and what that person has done. It's easy to see your struggle as being caused by what that person did. But the truth is a little bit different. The truth is, is that if we have an enemy, it's not so much that person as much as it is the evil one who seeks to use the types of things sometimes that happen to us to derail us spiritually. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? And it tells us who the real adversary. Who, ask yourself this question. Who is trying to take this situation that happened, that you're thinking about, that's bothering you? Who is trying to take that situation and create spiritual harm, both to you personally and to the church? And that's not that person so much as it is the evil one. It helps sometimes to get your mind off this other person. You know, it, 
and, and be thinking that that person's your enemy. Thirdly, there's another misconception. Forgiveness um, releases an offense into the hands of God so that we can heal. That's true. That's a true statement. Because the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. To the extent that we don't honor that principle, to the extent that we determine that we're going to hold on to this hurt, to hold on to this wrong because it's so real, because we feel it so deeply, we haven't turned the matter over to God. And God says, it's my business to settle this, not yours. Your business is to forgive. So this becomes a difficult thing for us, and I I thought maybe sharing a few things from that devotional that I encountered this week as I was reading about this might, might be apropos. Let's talk about the main thought that's here, and that's the duty of forgiveness, because that's really what Jesus wants to get to. Now, Peter asks a question that's designed to present himself in the best possible light. He, he wants to appear generous about it. But, you know, this is not going to be the first time that one of the disciples would ask Jesus a question and his answer would just utterly floor them. <laughs> and that's what happens here. Jesus says, no, even your generous response of seven times, generous in, in comparison to what the rabbis teach, you've missed the point. He said, I say unto you until 70 times 7, or some original language scholars believe that the actual ending on this word indicates 77 times anyway. doesn't really matter whether you look at it as 490 or whether you look at it as 77 times. Basically, again, coming back to the idea, and I think Jesus is picking up on this. Why did Jesus choose that particular number? If he'd been like you and me, he would have just said a million times. Right? We, you know, we, we look for a big number. But I think Jesus is picking up on this idea that Peter gave and thinking that, wow, seven's the number of completion. And Jesus said, well, we'll take that further than you can think. Not just what's human completion. Is forgiveness ever complete? I mean, would you want God to ration forgiveness to you? which is what Jesus is going to get into in this story that comes next. But just think about that for a moment, what he's really trying. He's giving him an impossibly large number. No one would ever think of somebody coming to you 77 times in a day. Would you? I hope you don't know anybody like that. 490 would be even more, but 77 would be enough for me to think to myself, I don't think that's possible. I think that's what the whole point is that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus is speaking of the duty of unlimited forgiveness. Would you want God to limit you? And God doesn't do that. Duty is clear enough in the parable that goes on. And we'll take a little bit of time to take some of the parts of this apart that will help us understand it a little bit better. But right now, just drop down to verse 33. So what happens? He tells a story about two servants, right? One guy's in debt for one amount. One guy's in debt for a different amount. The first guy comes and says, have patience. I'll pay you all. And when he sees that he can't pay, he just completely forgives the debt, right? Then the second guy goes out. He finds a guy that owes an amount that's much less. He grabs him by the throat. 
pay me what you owe me. He says the same exact words the first guy did. Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't forgive him that smaller debt. And that, that's kind of how the story runs. But when you get down to verse 33, and the king calls this servant back in to reckon with him over what he's done. Here's what he says to him, verse 33. Shouldest thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? But we can make that stronger. We can translate this in a way that really brings out the force of this word. This is okay the way it is, but I can make it stronger for you to really bring out the idea. Isn't it necessary for you also to have compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Necessary. It's necessary to do this. It's a duty. If we go over to Luke chapter 17 again, and I think this will be the last time I run you over there, but maybe you'd like to see this because it actually uses the word duty. Luke chapter 17, when it gets down into some of the extended teaching and we get down to this context, verse 10, just read it. I'm trying to save a little bit of time. If you'd like to do more with it later, please do. But he says this, so likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. And one of the things that he's been talking about there is this duty of forgiveness. So that's looking at it from the, <coughs> the positive perspective to say that unlimited forgiveness is a duty that we have. Not to extend forgiveness to people, so to look at it more from a negative perspective, is hypocritical. The king calls this man back in, and he's not only hypocritical, but the king calls him wicked. So what happens in the first part of the story? The one guy comes in, he has a debt. The king, because of the unlimited resources that he has and his compassion, he's moved with compassion, the Bible says, completely forgives this servant of a debt that's hopeless. I want, to, I want to know if you're picking up on any imagery here. Who is it that has unlimited resources? God does. His grace has no limit. Right? His grace has no limit. Just to magnify just how true this is, to, to give us something to just to kind of go, wow. As we think about God today, let me try to illustrate for you what this debt was. It's, t it's tough for us reading um, the way this is written, 10,000 talents, because we don't talk that way today. We tend to think of talents as abilities that you have. And I think a lot of you would know from Sunday school that in the Bible, uh, in this type of a context like this, the talent is a measurement. It's actually a weight measurement. Our struggle is now to figure out how do we turn this into something that we can relate to. All right, you've told me it's a weight measurement. What am I weighing? Well, I'm weighing something that's valuable. I'm weighing something that's money. First of all, how much does a talent weigh? And again, this is a, a problem too because to nail that down, um, the range that's given for us on this with, with interpreters is anywhere from 58 to 80 pounds. So you got, that's quite a, quite a range. So we're looking at a weight measurement somewhere between 58 and 80 pounds. I'm going to tell you what I did for my calculations. I went really conservative and just used 60. 
It could have been a lot more. Second thing we've got to solve is how, what weight are we, what metal are we talking about? What kind of things were valuable in the ancient world? Just name one. Gold. Gold. Okay. Anything else you can think of? Another still still valuable today. Silver. silver. The two main ones right there: gold and silver. Now, do you know how much gold is worth? Anybody know how much gold trades for now? Let's just say $1,300 an ounce. It'll be different a little bit tomorrow, but a real close number for what it trades at right now is $1,300 an ounce. Well, till you do all this math and you start figuring out I've got 60 pounds times 10,000 times 16. Are you with me how I got that? 10,000 talents, 60 pounds per talent, 16 ounces per pound times 1,300. It won't fit on your calculator. I'm serious. It'll run the zeros off your calculator. There's no church that I know of anywhere. If there is one that has one that has this, I want to see it. That has a calculator back there to count the offering that needs that many zeros. It'll just plumb run the zeros off your calculator. The, the easiest way to do it is ask your phone. This is really funny because, I mean, you know, in today's world, we think about the national debt. Well, that runs the zeros off your calculator, too. But if you do that math that I just gave you, and I think that's somewhat conservative, let's say we're using gold, you go up to 12.48 12 .12 billion dollars. Well, Jeff Bezos just gave his wife more than that in their divorce settlement. So, you know, in today's world, it's kind of gotten a little inflated, but how many people can go down and put their hands on $12.48 billion? If this guy could do that, he probably wouldn't have been a servant. So the whole point is the debt's hopeless. How it is that he got in that far over his head, I don't know. I know we learned one thing a long time ago in the Christian school ministry, and that was not to let that happen. As you'd see people's school bill balloon and balloon and balloon because they couldn't pay it or wouldn't pay it. Sometimes it was more the latter. Couldn't pay it or wouldn't pay it. And it just kept getting more and more and more until finally we learned experience over time. You know, you would have people who would walk away because they had a debt, $5,000, something like that. They'd stiff the church for $5,000. And over time, we got to the place where we realized we can't let that happen to people. Credit cards will do that to you, but we're not going to do that. And we put into place a system where we never let anybody get more than a month overdue without having a serious talk with them and finding out what we could do to arrange to address this problem. It solved a lot of problems when we did that in our ministry. How this guy got into that kind of debt, I don't know. But it was meant, it's meant to come across to us as a hopeless debt. What if you use silver? Okay, now we've got less because you still have the same number of ounces times the talents times the pounds and all that stuff. But what's silver worth? Let's just say $14 an ounce. It's a little bit less than $1,300 an ounce. Do that math and you'll come up with $137 million. But this guy's a common, ordinary guy like me and you. Is there anybody here that can go out of here and put his hands on $137 million? You don't have to put your hand up. That's a lot of money. Probably nobody here can do that. It, maybe no one here can go out here and put their hands on a million dollars, much less $137 million. 
Or there's another way of looking at this, and I find this intriguing. One trusted commentator says, if you want to figure it out in practical, not dollar terms, but just in terms of labor, you're talking about 30 million days wages, and that's longer than you have to do it. You can do that math, too, and if you want to figure out that you have 360 days to work in a year, which in today's society we don't work that much, and do the math over the course of a lifetime, you don't have that much time. So what's all this tell us? It's, it's meant to tell us this guy, he was hopeless. It was just, he didn't have a prayer. Same way you and I are, don't have a prayer. In hopeless debt before God. I mean, we don't even, sitting here this morning, we really, I don't think we have even much of a, an idea of what our sin debt really is before God. But aren't you glad that God is like this great king? He has limitless resources of grace. Amen. He can forgive you for anything and everything. So it's no wonder when these fellow servants see what happens, that this guy goes out and gets one of his fellow servants. Now, what's this guy owe him? It says here, 100 pence. Well, that's the denarii. So in other words, we know that one. We know that's what the common laborer would earn in a day. So again, let's be real conservative and not some of this, these new numbers. What if you use seven and a quarter? Is that what it still is, or have they raised it? What if you use seven and a quarter an hour and did this out in the math, you know what you'd come up with? $5,800. One guy owes $12.48 billion in gold, or if we're talking silver, since the denarius was silver, so let's do apples and apples. One guy owes $5,800 to his fellow servant, and the other guy owes $137 million to the king. He goes out and catches this guy by the neck. The guy makes the same plea to him that he made to the king. Have mercy with me and I, on me and I will pay thee all. And he would not. So it's not only from looked at from the negative standpoint, it's not only hypocritical, but it's self-defeating. And I'll tell you why. This is a fascinating thing to notice in this story as it comes to a conclusion. Sometimes it causes people some worry because... We tend to use the word torment and think about eternal torment, but you're not all, all torment is not eternal. His Lord was wroth, verse 34, and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. If we don't forgive... It's not only hypocritical and wicked, but it's self-defeating. Why is that? Because it'll torment you. See, what's fascinating about this is it's obvious the context is jail. Because if you look back up, it says that's what the servant did to his fellow servant. He, uh, Verse 30, he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. That's what you would do. You turn them over to the legal authorities and they'd be thrown into jail. But yet at the end of the story, he doesn't use the word for a jailer. Do you know a jailer in the Bible? In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian, Philippian jailer. So it's easy enough for us to reference in the New Testament what the common word for jailer is. He doesn't use a normal word that you would use if you were just going to refer to a jailer. He refers to a specific thing that some jailers do. 
What's that? Well, they can make life pretty miserable for you in that jail if you aren't already miserable enough, right? They could put you in the stocks. That's what happened in Philippi, right? They put them in the stocks. They had already been beaten. Then they put them in the stocks. There's other things they can do to you in there to make life even more miserable for you, and we've heard of some of this, so I don't have to elaborate on that. That's the word he chooses to use. It's a totally different word in Greek that, that means exactly what it says, but it focuses on something that is known to happen in jails, particularly if the person who casts you in there has it in for you. So do you want to be an unhappy person? Here's a recipe for it. Be an unforgiving person. Because I'll tell you what this really boils down to in practical terms. If we do not forgive, it means we hold a grudge. And if we hold a grudge, then we become bitter and angry and depressed. And that's not much of a recipe for a person to be around. You make yourself unhappy and the people who are around you unhappy as well. I was fascinated. I came across also this week a secular study. That's why it fascinated me. Here's a secular study that was done by Duke University on peace of mind. They noted eight factors that are found to contribute greatly to emotional and mental stability. Look at what they mention first. This is a secular study. They're talking about peace of mind. Here are eight factors that are found to be contribute greatly to emotional and mental stability. And the first one on their list, listen to it. The absence of suspicion and resentment, nursing a grudge with, was a major factor in unhappiness. Now, I don't want you to mistake anything this morning because you're going you're gonna to look out there and say, oh, he doesn't ever have to worry about that. It's, it, he, you know. Well, I'm just going to tell you something. Half of what you do as a preacher, it's easy to preach, it's hard to live. And I know what I'm talking about. This is not easy. And I'm sure that you know it's not easy either. So let's talk for just a moment as we conclude today's message about the dilemma. The dilemma is this. It's found in verses 15 through 20 and then over in Luke 17, verses 3. And we won't take a lot of time for this, but you know, in you could read these verses. Sometimes people say this is church discipline or whatever, but it's, it's, it's only church discipline if it gets to that, right? He gives a process. He says the first thing you do is you don't go blab to other people. You don't go out there and get two or three people on your side. You don't go out there and get two or three more people in the church and say, look what he did, look what he did. So that you've got all these people on your side. That ruins the whole thing. You're never going to get reconciliation with somebody if you do that. Just think about that for a minute. How would you feel if that was how your situation were handled? That this person, before they came to you privately to discuss and give you an opportunity to respond, they went out to tell everybody else how bad what, what you did was. That'd really set the stage to be forgiving, wouldn't it? So see, it only gets to church discipline if all these other things fail. The first thing you do is you go talk to them. Not always easy. Sometimes very difficult. Doesn't mean that you have an alternative. You know what I'm saying? Just because something's hard and difficult doesn't mean you can push it off and say, well, I don't have an obligation to do that because if you knew him. And then there's a, you know, it goes on from there. But my point is, what do you do if you, if you follow all the principles, and, and we won't get into all that today, what, but what if you follow, all, if, my, if more of your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive you. If you go talk to the person, it get, you still don't get any satisfaction, so you, you get somebody else to kind of go with you and, and still don't get any satisfaction. 
I've seen situations where these things have gone the limit on this. I've seen these things brought to churches before. And to me, it's always a total breakdown in what ought to be the normal processes of Christian reconciliation if that happens. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't have to be, go that far. But this is where the disciples perhaps were a little more intuitive than what they realized because now I'll take you back and just refer one more time. I said we wouldn't have to go back here, but I do want to refer to this. I'm sorry, one time in closing. That Luke 17 maybe makes a little more sense to you now. This is the dilemma. What do you do if you follow all those processes and you don't get any satisfaction? This is where that Luke 17, 5 comes in. The apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Well, you just have to have faith. That's not always easy. Faith in what? Not in people. Faith in whom? Faith in God. Faith in God that if you do what's right and turn it over to him, he is far, believe me, he is far more capable of dealing with an unrighted wrong than you are. And if you turn it over to him, if you do what's right, if you say, you know, here, what's my responsibility in this situation? My responsibility is to forgive. Whether they ask or not, you have to be willing to forgive. If you want to be happy, you have to forgive. Now, will the relationship be fixed? Yours will be fine. The relationship between you and God, you'll be fine. If you do that, you and God, you'll be fine. This other person, well, it may have to wait for that person to understand what they did, be willing to listen to you, be willing to make it right. It may have to wait for that, for that relationship really to be restored as it once was. But just think about it this way as we look to conclude this today. And I kind of already said this to you in one way or another, but who here today would want the Lord to limit how often or for what you can ask forgiveness? Just think about it that way. And to be followers of God as dear children then we have to be like God. Our forgiveness can't be measured by what they did or how often they did it. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Verse 32 is the last verse in the chapter. If you don't know this verse by memory, you should learn it. I'll go so far as to say you should learn it before today's over because you're going to need it about every day. What's it say? And be ye kind one to another. Say it along with me if you can. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. How do we do it? Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And then, once in a while, those chapter divisions get in the way. So if you look down in your Bible and you just played like you didn't see a chapter division there and you went right from Ephesians 4.32 to Ephesians 5.1, the very next verse says, be followers of God as dear children. That's, that's what it is. That's what it takes to be godly.
story is told of two brothers. I don't know whether they inherited or what, but they had adjoining farms. The practical boundary that they saw every day each other between their two farms was a stream that ran down through the property. So the older brother, Pete, was on this side, and the younger brother, his farm, was on the other side. Well, these two brothers got along very, very well for years and years and years. For over 40 years, in fact, they worked side by side, had a good relationship, shared equipment, helped each other with things they needed. Then one day, a problem happened and a rift occurred. It didn't get resolved, and so finally it grew into a major problem. And they wouldn't talk to each other. It was just followed by bitter words and, and weeks of angry silence. Well, one day, Pete was out in the field doing some chores, and he heard something, looked. A man had driven up with a work truck. The man got out of the work truck. He had a, a small kind of like a tool satchel. He said, hey, how you doing? Pete said back to him, fine, what can I do for you? He said, well, he said, I'm a, like a, a, a repairman. He said, I, I'm, I do odd jobs. He says, I, I need a few days' work. He said, do you have any jobs that you need done? Pete thought to himself, and he said, you know what, I do. He said, look down there at that creek. So he looked down at the creek. He said, that's the border between my farm and my brother's farm. So he always keeps that plenty deep so I can't get across. So he said, I tell you what I want you to do. He said, you look over there by the shed, that pile of timber over there. He said, I want you to build a fence along this creek. Make it tall enough. I don't even have to look over there at him anymore. So the fellow looked at him. He said, yeah, sure, that's, that's in my wheelhouse. I can do that. Pete said, good. Well, I have to run off to the auction this afternoon, the cattle auction. So he said, I'll see you later on towards the evening when I get back. So Pete went off to the cattle auction, got to be towards the end of the day. He came back, and he looked to see if he would have this new fence that he had told this guy to build. He looked, and he didn't see any fence. In fact, he saw the guy down there at the creek. He had built a bridge. And walking across that bridge was his brother. He walked down, met his brother halfway on the bridge, and here's what his younger brother said to him. He said, Pete, after all I've done to you these past few weeks, I can't believe you would still reach out to me. He said, you're right. It's time to bury the hatchet. They met in the middle. They embraced. They forgave one another. About that time, Pete looked around, saw the carpenter leaving. He said, no, wait. He said, stay a few days. He said, I've got some more projects for you to do. Carpenter said, I'd love to stay on, but he said, I have more bridges to build. To me, the question that I want to leave you with this morning is, are we building bridges or fences? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your tender mercies. I pray, Father, you come and speak to us here today, realizing that we've talked about a subject that, if we're honest, we know is very difficult. 
I doubt there's anybody here today that hasn't had some type of offense, some type of personal injury, sometimes done by those who call themselves brothers and sisters. And it is so difficult for us to let go of those things when they hurt so bad. And I pray you come to us and squeeze our hearts today. Make us tender. Help us to realize that if that's how we are, we're just like that person you've described in that story, hypocritical, wicked, and self-tormented. But we struggle. We need grace. And the Bible says, if we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the fur." Feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, to obtain mercy and find grace, to help in time of need. We need grace. That's what we come asking for today. Minister to each heart, minister to each life. If the Holy Spirit has helped us to identify a situation where we've been unwilling to extend forgiveness... Help us to see that. Help us to see what it is and to be willing to deal with it. It's our decision to make regardless of what the other person does. Help us to see it in that light. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. It's just a time for us to be open-hearted before God. How many people here today say, Preacher, I need God's grace. There's a situation that I struggle with. Pray for me. I want to take a few moments, too, to pray here right now that God will give me victory and give me grace. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be like that wicked servant. Anybody like that? Just slip your hand up. God bless you. 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 Someone else? God bless you. I pray, Father. Help us in our weakness. We, we just struggle sometimes with this so desperately. It is so difficult, so real, so pervasive. Help us also, Father, to look at it from the other's perspective that somebody needs to come to us about a problem. We listen to them. We're open to them. Searching our own hearts for how we may have been a cause of some offense and tender if we've done wrong. Give us a greater measure of victory. Help us by your grace. Forgive us for our failure in this regard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, in our songbooks, let's turn to page 430. I think the title of this one probably will 